Okay, so we are um, in the final part of Stephen's speech, Acts 7, 51 to 8, Acts 8, to, uh, Acts 8, 3. Uh, always tricky when you're crossing chapters. Um, but today we're looking at the last part of Stephen's life as he finishes his uh, speech and then receives uh, a stoning from the members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, and this week we're going to look at this conviction of faith. How much have we really invested ourselves in Christ as followers of him? I want, to show, uh, I want to show both for us as Christians and non-believers that we constantly need the courage of our convictions. That is the conviction that we believe in Christ Jesus. That as believers we have heard the call of Christ on our lives and have made a bold statement that it is far better to die for something than to live for nothing. Now what we'll find is because this is the death of Stephen, he does it at the, the very cost of his own life to preach the word, to share the good news. Uh, we can almost, it almost sounds like I'm going to start a cult meeting. Uh, and most, many cults talk about Stephen's have to die for something. Uh, I'm not, this is not what that is, but it, it is about letting go of ourselves, of our own um, false sense of security. So I want to be clear that convictions are definitely the most tested when we face death. But convictions are also tested in everyday life as a Christian who now lives in a foreign place. We now live as foreigners in this world. So that's something that we want to believe in, that we, we trust in, cannot be just anything. And it cannot be especially worldly or fleeting. The something has to have substance and purpose. It has to mean something. And so when people contemplate uh, the accepting the truth that Jesus died for our sins and provided redemption through salvation, no one should consider it lightly. When we look at Stephen's conviction to the end, we don't see a man driven by martyrdom itself. We see a man that was martyred for his faith. He didn't go looking for death as if to earn some place in paradise. His death was an event that happened in the course of his unwavering, wavering faith. There is no other religion that provides a saviour in the form of God that reveals the sin of all for the salvation of all who believe in him. No other religion. So let's understand then how the Christian faith is to be embraced with conviction first and foremost, then understand how conviction will give us the courage to share the good news of Jesus. Let's get into our verses. Acts 7, 51 uh, to Acts 8, verse 3. Uh, and it goes like this. It says, you stiff-necked people. Good beginning. Uh, that's a shouting, by the way. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him you who have received the law that was given through the through angels but have not obeyed it when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit looked up at heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God look he said I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices they all rushed at him, 
dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It was difficult to where to see the end of this one, uh, of this particular sermon, because uh, the next chapter obviously goes a bit into Stephen still, and then we hear a bit about Saul, so we, we might be overlapping into the next one. Um, but I think it's good just to, what we're seeing here, and strangely we're at the sort of weekend of Pentecost, um, we're actually seeing uh, the breakout of God's people. So we, we hear in these first few chapters before uh, chapter 7, or at least up to chapter 7, uh, that there's a, there's a formation of God's church. And then after chapter 7, there's a scattering of God's church. That's the timeline. So now uh, all God's people are scattered across the nations and they, and they start to be, have to go out because of what's happening. I just flicked on and off. Okay, we'll see how that goes. Okay, so that's where we are. We're now probably just on the edge here where we're, we're about to see Christians um, scattered out and to go and spread the good news because of persecution. So where are we now? But we're at the point where Stephen's message will hit home. Uh, he has spoken of the history of God's people in order to show them that their, that their rejection of God has happened before and will happen again if they do not accept Jesus. He's already told them that God was not to be considered uh, a God of place. The temple is no more. The temple is not a place where God is uh, confined in our minds, as it were. That's, that's it's not a specific temple anymore. That their, that their way of understanding God's presence was no longer limited by a temple building. And so the old tradition of Judaism cannot carry the way of Jesus in Christianity. There has to be a change, a turn of direction, a turn and go a new way through Jesus. Matthew 9 verse 7 says, Neither do people pour new wines into uh, old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. You see, Israel was the light to the nations. It was always about going to where they were. People went to them. But now Stephen was trying to show them that God would go to everyone, including the Gentiles. That seemed to anger them, frustrate them, annoy them. Almost like this is our God and you have to come to us. But no more was that the limitation, uh, certainly from, not from a God perspective, but from a people perspective. Jesus' death and resurrection was an act of God doing something for people even when we didn't know we needed it. That's God going to everyone. That is grace. Not limited by temples or specific places of God's presence, but now going to all. That was the change that the Sanhedrin were finding hard to accept. The Holy Spirit now dwelled within God's people, God going to people. And this is why it angers and agitates the members of the Sanhedrin. So Stephen rebukes them with the same words that we use towards their ancestors. Exodus 32 
Verse 9 says, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff, a stiff-necked people. Jeremiah 9, verse 26, Egypt, Judah, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and all who live in the wilderness in distant places, for all these nations are really uncircumcised, and even the whole house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. It is sad to see that the ancestors that Stephen speaks of have been called stiff-necked by God at least 20 times in the Bible. So Stephen's rebuke is not to make them angry. It's not even to bait them. He's not just doing it to, as maybe common uh, language say, to wind them up. He's not doing that. He's doing it to show them that God himself has deemed them stiff-necked specifically when they went against him. The pattern was reoccurring over and over again. So Stephen shows this here. The passionate plea was in hope. He shouts because we see an exclamation, and that might be an English translation, but we see that because he has a passion to see them come to their senses. He wants them to know that they need to believe in Jesus. It was in the hope that they would connect the dots of what had happened in the past and see that it was happening again. But let's not dull the sharpness and courage of what Stephen is saying. An early quote in what normally we wouldn't have, a Spurgeon quote, he says, he takes the sharp knife of the word and rips up the sins of the people, laying open the inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their souls. He could not have delivered that searching address with greater fearlessness had he been assured that they would thank him for the operation. The fact that his death was certain had no other effect upon him than to make him yet more zealous. Great quote. We know that Stephen's words have an effect on ripping open the heart of sin because their response tells us so. Verse 54 of our reading says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. You heard that term before, gnash their teeth at him? Interesting, isn't it, why it's in this part of the Bible when we've heard it before. This gnashing of teeth is a particular important description of what was really in their hearts and really did reveal their true sinful selves. These men in the Sanhedrin, they were prominent. They were distinguished, successful, and appeared to be religious, yet they were rejecting God and revealing themselves as citizens of hell. Matthew 8, verse 12. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when jesus was speaking to the centurion he explained that gentiles would share in the kingdom of heaven along with israel's patriarchs but when jesus speaks of the subjects of the kingdom he speaks of the nation of israel he was telling the centurion that it would not be enough to be born into the nation of israel to get a place in heaven Jesus is saying instead that faith in him will be the deciding factor of who is allowed into eternity in heaven. Galatians 3 verse 7 to 9 says, Understanding that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith 
and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Starting to get a sense why we start with Abraham, why Stephen's speech includes Abraham at the beginning. We're starting to see him closing up his, uh, his speech. And this is relevant to that. So we can see why this response is not only a response of anger, but also a response of sinful fleshly nature. It's really important to understand so we can see the ferocity and rage at which the members of the Sanhedrin respond. And so knowing this, Stephen lifts his head, stares into heaven, even seeing the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 55 of our reading, sorry, 55 and 56 says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Does anyone know what is strange about this vision? It's to do with the position of Jesus. He's standing. What does Scripture keep telling us? He's sitting at the right hand of God, of the Father. But now, and the only time it's mentioned, Jesus is standing. Now, how does Stephen even see this? Because Stephen accepted Christ's word and relied upon uh, God's power and faithfulness, that is why he's seeing this vision. That is why he is seeing something similar, maybe, to what we see in Isaiah. Isaiah 6, verse 1, says, In the year that King uh, Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This sense of vision, we... we we don't know for sure how Stephen saw it, but we can get a sense through Isaiah and how he saw things, even maybe Daniel. We get that same sense of vision and description uh, that we're seeing here. But Stephen's vision is of Jesus standing at the right hand. And I think it's F. Bruce is his name, uh, theologian. He says, Stephen's been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ confessing his servant before God sense of standing is so very important that Jesus is standing. And you get the sense, you know, that maybe this has something to do with Stephen's about to meet, uh, meet him. He's, he's going to die. He's going to be stoned to death. So Jesus is standing. An article on the Gospel Coalition a website is quite helpful as a part of it that says this. He stood to receive Stephen's testimony and to be his advocate. He has stood that he might come forward to be the judge of those who will trample upon God's prophet. Jesus is rising <clears throat> from his throne to come to Stephen's defense and to judge his persecutors. He stood to vindicate Stephen and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. God knows what will come after Stephen speaks of this vision out loud, so Jesus stands with him. When Stephen declared that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, it was too much for the Sanhedrin, for the members of the Sanhedrin. They react quickly, violently, and together. When Jesus, before this same body of men, declared that he would sit at the right hand of God, they had the same reaction and sealed his death as a blasphemer. The members of the Sanhedrin would cover their ears and rush him. Now, this, this, this rush him has really got me when I was reading this because this feels demonic. 
this, this sense of so much rage that it's not just let's uh, get, get the guards to take him outside. There's a rush. They, they rush him like they're, like they're possessed. No one else seems to describe that, although, although there is, and I'll, I'll tell you where that is. There's one place where it describes a similar thing. So when we combine it with the gnashing of teeth, we're almost seeing something demonic. Such rage has overtaken these distinguished older men. They rage under the guise of blasphemy. But at the heart of it is disobedience and a rejection of God. So when we look at the word to rush him, there's this Greek word called hormeo. Um, and it's the same word used to describe the mad rush of the herd of swine into the sea. We'll see this in Matthew 8, 28 to 34. It says this, when he arrived at the other side of the region of the of Gadarenes, uh, sorry, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent, keep that in mind, they were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region power of God on display right now. This is the sense that Stephen's seeing in his vision. The power of God, heaven open up and he can see uh, the vision of Jesus and the Father. But this was an out of control mob rushing at Stephen. And this tells us something of the dark and demonic which is at play. Jesus warned of these very actions that would be taken against followers of him in John 16 verses 2 to 3. Uh, it's 1 to 3, but it says, All this I've told you, so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. Does this sound familiar? They think they're offering a service for, to God by taking Stephen out and stoning him. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. What, a, what an indictment. They do this because they don't even know the Father, yet they think they know the Father. They... They deceive themselves into thinking they know the Father and his heart. But because of this deception they're living under, they begin stoning Stephen. It is a brutally slow way to die. So I imagine all the pain is felt as every stone hits him. But within that moment, we see Saul is present. As a supervisor of what was happening, the witness, it says, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And it says Saul approved of this action. Why is Saul there? Well, this is, of course, the same man that would later become a believer and follower of Jesus and be named Paul. And I don't think it's that God wants him to do what he done, uh, to do what he, he actually did or see the stoning of Stephen himself. I think what I believe God has placed in there for is what Stephen says next. In our reading, verses 59 to 60, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then they fell on his knee. They, then he fell on his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
when he, when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's Jesus-like cry of mercy to God for those that persecuted him was laying the groundwork in Saul's heart. It's strange that we move on when we see just the last verse of our reading. We see Saul just, just almost double, double down on, his, on what he's doing, that it will continue and get worse before he gets better probably a sense of many believers experience of needing to hit rock bottom of needing to go so far to meet the end of themselves before they meet Jesus the courage of conviction whilst was not going to change the hearts of those killing him was in part to lead to the change of Saul into a believer of Jesus God answered Stephen's prayer and use it to touch the heart of a man who enthusiastically agreed with his stoning. And so, in fact, it would need Saul to go so much further in the persecution of Christians so that Jesus would reveal to him the gravity of his own sinfulness. We learn that God exposes us constantly to the extreme of our sinfulness in the hope that we may turn away from it. So we get the same sense when we hear about Saul and to the extreme of his sinfulness and rebellion against God in the hope that he will turn from it. But Stephen was unaware of what Saul would become, so Stephen's prayer stands powerfully on its own. Just as Jesus uttered the word, so Stephen wanted what Jesus wanted. Luke 23, verse 34 says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Stephen displays the same forgiving attitude that Jesus had on the cross. He asked God to forgive his accusers, and he made the promises loudly and publicly. What we find here with Stephen is what Paul speaks of in Philippians. Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13. Lots of scripture today because it's just so much that ties in with Stephen's character and what he was doing. It says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. One more verse, I believe. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. A really important verse. Lucky I didn't miss that. But Stephen's courage of conviction was not through a sense of his willpower, his own willpower to endure in his own strength. His courage of conviction came from knowing and believing that, he, that what he knew of Jesus and the promise that was fulfilled in him could not be changed by any man, by any circumstance, by any attempt. No matter how much they killed his body. It wasn't the persecution that made Stephen courageous or strong. The persecution only served to reveal what was already there. He had a love for Jesus and everything Jesus stands for. A man who invited, who invited in and was filled with the Holy Spirit when he gave his life to Christ. So when I said at the start, no one should consider it likely to be a Christian, I want you to know that unless we have accepted every non-negotiable aspect of faith, we may not have fully considered a life of following Jesus. What are those fundamentals and non-negotiables 
It's that scripture alone is our highest authority and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, the five solas. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So when we embrace that, then our courage and strength does not come from us or provide the means by which we endure. It comes from God who gave it as a free gift by grace. When we are convicted by the free gift of God in salvation, then we no longer live waiting for the persecution, expecting that to change us. It may be the thing that God uses to teach us, but we're not here waiting for the persecution because we need to be ready before the persecution. If that is to come to us, then we cannot wait for the persecution to teach us. The Bible is enough to ground us in our faith when it comes. So rather, any persecution or challenge to our way of life under Jesus will bring out that which we already believe and we already live for. Once again, Paul himself sums this up well. And I think the suffering of Stephen has helped us to understand what this means for us today. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For the sake of Christ, he says, I am content. I did wonder when I was uh, reading this, I wonder whether we sometimes make the mistake, consciously or unconsciously, of maybe living the opposite way in these times. Maybe we've tried to be strong in the face of adversity, which has actually served to make us weak in Christ. As Paul says, because of his faith in Christ, and for Christ's sake, first and foremost, he is content with the adversity and afflictions of this world that go against him. They cannot compare to the contentment he has in Christ Jesus. They just cannot. So we must change, if needed, we must change our point of view. For when the body is weak, then Christ is strong. Just before Stephen was stoned to death, he saw Jesus and knew that it was not going to be a persuasive argument or show of human strength to resist, but that he would become weak for the sake of Christ and spread the gospel. Look what happened. It forces, it forces them to persecute more Christians, and that scatters the Christians to spread the word further. That, in, the, in a normal sense, would not make sense. The persecution should end, and it did. Many false prophets, it ended them, and it ended their false prophesying or false message this only served to grow and strengthen the message of jesus how many times do they need to be told it's it's just never going to work you're never going to win against god we need to be convinced that our faith is not to just get through the rough times or celebrate in the good times faith in christ is more than that 
It is the unbreakable bond between sinful people who embrace Christ as their saviour and with Christ himself. Romans 8, verse 38 to 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's simply this as we come to the end here. If then we are first convinced and convicted of that, then we have nothing to fear in sharing the salvation of the gospel. There is nothing that can separate us from our eternal destination with Christ Jesus. Nothing. Let's pray. And then we'll have some worship and then we'll take our communion together. Lord, we just want to thank you right now that you have our future assured. That no matter how many people try to convince us otherwise, no matter how many people try to twist the words of the Bible, no matter how many times people try to disprove the Bible, disprove our faith, it will not take us away from you. That, Lord, we can get confidence not from ourselves, but confidence from your word. And your word is your bond. I mean, literally and figuratively, it is your bond. It is your promise to us that you will take us from here to be with you when we trust in Jesus. Nothing will take us away. So, Lord, we just want to ask, Lord, that you give us that sense of confidence because it's not just about facing death and persecution because of our faith, but in everything, Lord. We have different challenges maybe in this, uh, in the Western world. Lord, that maybe we're seeing persecution and we're just going, well, I'm just getting ready for that. I'm just getting ready for, for, for when someone's going to haul me up in front of someone and I'm going to be asked if I'm a Jesus follower. Oh, Lord, it's, the devil is also so much more devious than that. He will do it in little bits, chipping away, attempting to get us to relinquish our faith, to let go of God so that we don't believe in him anymore. He is so much more devious than the obvious, but... He is nowhere near as smart and as awesome as God. Not even the devil can undo what God has done. So Lord, I pray that we will not be waiting for the moment to test us. Rather, we get into and know and trust your word first so that when the moments come, we are already ready to go. I pray for your Holy Spirit in that, Lord, that you work in us to teach us and to build us up in your word so we are ready. Continuously, constantly, and at every minute of the day, we are ready to receive a word from the Holy Spirit. We are ready to give an account 
a testimony of what you have done. And Lord, we do this today as we approach communion. So Lord, we just want to worship you now. We want to set our minds right before we come, break bread, drink wine. And Lord, we just want to find a place that we can just worship you and give all these things to you. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen.